SFA is at the forefront of our regional foodways field. By way of our Gravy Journal and podcast, through events and scholarship, SFA leads the dialogue about regional food culture. With your support, we aim to do more. If you're not a member, please join us at the table. If you are a member, consider making a donation to SFA. We depend on philanthropic gifts to support and expand oral history, film, and gravy, both journal and podcast. Your donation makes our work possible. Visit our website, southernfoodways.org, to explore our work, become a member, or make a gift. And thank you. When we think about the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, certain people and moments come to mind. There's Rosa Parks and Bull Connor, police officers swinging billy clubs and unleashing attack dogs, dignified activists claiming seats at lunch counters. But have you ever wondered where those armies of activists went for a good meal and a safe night's sleep in the segregated South? What about the women of the movement who roasted rounds of beef and served civil rights workers' carrot souffles, who baked lemon icebox cookies and pound cakes? She took a risk opening her home to me, and I think that that has to be understood. Every black family that took in civil rights workers took a risk. I mean, the house could have been shot into, set on fire, bombed. All of those things could have happened. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Some who worked to dismantle segregation fought from the kitchen and the dining room table, offering a form of aid just as bold as carrying a picket sign. They fed people. They nurtured resistance. Today, reporter Rosalind Bentley explores the work of a relative who taught her the art of serving as a hostess and the subtle side of revolution. A good night's rest, a hot meal, a place to lay your head at night where you felt relatively safe. Those were cornerstones of the movement that I believe often get overlooked You had women all across the South doing this relatively quiet and unsung work at great risk. You had families in St. Augustine, Florida, families in Selma, Alabama. You had families in Memphis, Tennessee, all over who did this sort of work. When I was maybe 11 or 12, we took a trip to visit my great aunt Lucille Burton in Albany, Georgia. We called her Aunt Lucy. Before my mother and I left Tallahassee, where I grew up, I got the talk. I was supposed to be on my best behavior, make up my bed without being asked, and scrub the bathtub with Comet each and every time I got out. These were my mother's standard orders any time we visited a relative, whether we intended to spend the night or not, but especially at Aunt Lucy's. Aunt Lucy was the most sophisticated of my great aunts. She had been a school teacher. Back then, that put her solidly in the black middle class. Teaching in segregated schools was one of the few careers a black woman could have. Aunt Lucy was built like a runway model. Tall and slim, she was gorgeous and so refined. I couldn't get enough of her. Her little white bungalow was a palace to me. A visit to Aunt Lucy's meant crisp sheets on gleaming mahogany beds. It meant peeking through pristine lace curtains. It meant sitting at the dining room table eating homemade lemon icebox cookies off a china plate. 
Her starched linen tablecloth covered my knees, and my greatest fear was dropping crumbs on it. This was in the 1970s, so I was mostly worried about us getting to Aunt Lucy's before Soul Train and wrestling came on. What I had not learned in my integrated middle school was that Albany had been an early battleground in the civil rights movement. Nobody ever said that the house on West Lincoln Avenue had been a freedom house. Front yard, of course, Mama always made sure that her yards were in excellent order. And um, you had a front porch. You had an outdoor garage. And when you walked into the front, you walked into the living room. And on the right was the front bedroom. And then you had the you had a fireplace in the living room, of course. And of course, she had bought me a piano when I was five years old. I started taking. That's my favorite cousin, Brenda Webb. She's Aunt Lucy's only child. She grew up in that house. Now she lives in Atlanta. I've asked her and my cousin Clinton King to help me understand the contributions of women like Aunt Lucy. <laughs> And, and, and the place where I felt, felt always most comfortable was not in her living room or in her dining room or even in the hallway. It was yeah. in that kitchen. Clinton's father, Shaveen Bowers King, was an attorney for Martin Luther King Jr. Even though both King families had the same last name, they weren't related. Around Albany, people called Shaveen C.B. He was a founder of the official Albany movement. He helped recruit Aunt Lucy and several other women in the community who became stealth partners in the Albany campaign. You could say they were hostesses of the movement. Albany holds a more dubious place in the history of the movement. Some have called the early 1960s battle a failure. Well, the truth is more complicated than that. First, it helps to understand the town's past. For generations, agriculture made the county seat of Doherty County hum. Cotton, cultivated first by enslaved and later free black folks. Pecans, peanuts. In fact, for decades, the town and surrounding county were predominantly African-American. When it came to lynchings, they didn't happen in Albany. They didn't happen in Doherty County because there were so many black people there. It was safety in numbers. After black men got the right to vote during Reconstruction, Albany sent black representatives to the state legislature. Then, Jim Crow laws crushed their plans to help govern the land they built. By the 1920s, most black people who had been registered voters were purged from voter rolls in Albany. If illegal poll taxes didn't stop them, intimidation by whites in power did. With no vote, black people had no civic voice in the city where they were the majority. It was a town of near complete segregation in the schools, in neighborhoods, the hospital, restaurants. If you were black, you couldn't go into a white-owned store and try on a dress or hat. You couldn't use the same waiting room as a white person, including in the bus station. You know, you're talking about a time when it wasn't like there was an option for black folk to go check into the Holiday Inn. You know, 
Under Jim Crow segregation, the system, the powers that be, made relevant what was irrelevant, which was the color of your skin. Aunt Lucy was sent away from our family farm in Jackson County, Florida, just before World War II. My great-grandparents wanted her to go to a historically black college in Albany, so they sent her up the Flint River to live with our cousins, the Kings. They ran the Little Wonder Cafe inside of Bob's Candy Company, purveyor of those iconic twisted red and white candy canes and peanut butter crackers. They owned a couple of grocery stores, a dress shop, and a good bit of real estate. C.W. King, the family patriarch, had been a founder of the local NAACP chapter. The voter registration drive in Albany was just beginning to gain traction in 1961. For the newly formed Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, called SNCC for short, it seemed the perfect opportunity. Black and some white college students worked together to register African Americans to vote. When they descended on Albany that year, they needed a place to meet. CB's brother, Slater King, who was vice president of the Albany movement, let them use an empty house he owned. They also needed places to eat, cheaply. SNCC workers only made about $10 a week. The call went out across the community. Who could help feed these kids? I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That glorious alto voice is Ms. Ruth Maggie Harris. I've come to Albany to visit her in the house her father built in 1935. He was a minister. It's just a few blocks away from Aunt Lucy's. The Harris house is a pale yellow bungalow with rust-colored shutters. It looks like a thick pad of butter dotted with cinnamon. Inside, the walls are covered with family photos. There are pictures of her with President Obama, all kinds of certificates. It's like a museum to Ms. Harris's role in the movement. It was sitting in one of the Freedom Houses. This is the Harris House, and it is known as one of the Freedom Houses. We housed a lot of workers here. We slept them, we fed them. We would even sit out on the stoop out there. And we just had, when we weren't working, we just had fun outside. Ms. Harris was one of the original Freedom Singers a quartet of young gospel singers who got their start at protest meetings in Albany. The Freedom Singers eventually traveled the country raising money for SNCC. But before she hit the road, Ms. Harris helped register people to vote. What made me realize that I wasn't free is when I did a voter registration drive. We did a citizenship school where we would teach people how to write, and so that they could become registered voters. There was this young man, I can't remember his name, but he was 90 years old. He did not know how to write his name. 90 years old. And when I taught him how to write his name, he shouted. And and I just hugged him. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. 
he became a registered voter. While she was out, her mother, Mrs. Katie B. Harris, stayed at home cooking. The house would be thick with the scent of sugary candied yams and savory ham hocks and greens. When SNCC kids crowded the house at the end of the day, they emptied the serving bowls. You get your paper plate, and you get what you want off the table. After you've done your, your voter registration work during the day, you need a place where you can come and relax, a place where you can take a bath. Because at the time, people couldn't use public accommodations. No, ma'am. No, couldn't even use that. You had to stay close. Because if you didn't stay close, you might be shot at or beat up. But the movement was, was not made up only of black folk. The movement was made up of every color. And every color was right here in this house. Outside of a handful of black-owned restaurants, Albany's diners and hotels were off-limits to civil rights workers. Women like Ms. Harris's mother stepped up. She knew how to set a welcome table. Collard greens, cabbages, neck bones, fried chicken, cornbread, uh, broccoli, potato salad. Uh, did I say cabbages? Yeah, the usual southern meal. Breakfast, it was bacon, grits, sausage, eggs, toast, milk, juice, all, time, all kinds of juices. Day in and day out? Day in and day out until they were gone. My mom said it was a pleasure for her to be able to house and feed these students, as she called them. Uh, we were not uh, a poor family. Uh, my dad left us very well. She looked at it as her contribution because she knew that she was not going to march, but she knew that her children would. Those marchers were arrested by the hundreds with such regularity the jail in Albany couldn't hold them all. Neighboring counties locked up the overflow. Harris was jailed three times. The infamous Albany police chief, Lori Pritchett, vowed to break the civil rights movement by matching Dr. King's nonviolent approach. Instead of wielding billy clubs to break up demonstrations, they used bullhorns and handcuffs. And whenever I was in jail... He would always holler back to my cell. Hey, Ruther, sing that song about me and Kelly. I sang. Oh, preacher, open them By November 1961, many in black Albany were poking old Jim Crow in the eye. Students tried to integrate the bus and train terminals by taking seats in white-only waiting rooms. Pritchett promptly arrested them. The Albany group asked Dr. King to be the voice of their fight. Legions followed suit. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the NAACP, the Congress of Racial Equality, and more SNCC volunteers descended on Albany. 
more miles to feed and more souls to sleep. Can't you hear God's children? You know they are suffering. Families all across Black Albany pitched in. The Terrells, the Georges, the Gaines, the Carnegies, the Nobles. Even Koinonia Farm, an integrated commune some 30 miles north, sent homegrown string beans, peaches, peas, and corn. And it's a major part of activism. One of the ways, particularly within Southern vernacular culture, one of the ways in which you show love and support is you feed people. Dr. Maurice Hobson is a professor of African-American history at Georgia State University. He grew up in Selma, Alabama, years after the Bloody Sunday March. Yet the contributions of women like Aunt Lucy, Mrs. Aurelia Noble, Miss Annette Jones, and Miss Mardesk Shirley and Albany have largely been overlooked and underestimated. Some of it is a simple fact that they were women. History has always focused more on the men of the movement because much of that history has been written by men. What women did in kitchens and gardens wasn't as obvious as what was happening in the streets and in courtrooms. Women really put gas in the tank to really support the civil rights movement, and they're given very little credit behind this. The ministers had all gotten themselves together, had all provided money to make sure that the young people had food to eat. Many of the uh, domestics and black women cooks took off their jobs to make sure that the food was prepared for these protesters. And this, I mean, we're talking about the actual nuts and bolts of sustaining a movement based on food and rest. That's at the most basic level. That's the most important aspect of the movement. It are the nuts and bolts, the actual lifeblood of sustaining the activist. Of making sure that they are fed, rested and safe. It was noble work, hard work for sure. Preparing all those meals and always wondering if you were being watched by people who wanted to crush the movement. Yet, when you talk to some of those women today, you get the sense they devalue the role of cooking. I said, wait a minute. Don't classify me as the cook. Mrs. Juanita Abernathy is the widow of Reverend King's chief partner and strategist, Reverend Ralph David Abernathy. When I visited her Atlanta home, I wanted to hear about the meals she made both in Montgomery during the bus boycott and in Atlanta once her family and the Kings moved there. Dr. King knew their house well. He would come by here almost every day before he, night before he'd go home, uh, two or three nights a week. And, and whatever I had to eat, he'd eat. She's in her 80s now, and she still has the dark, wooden, casual dining set where they all ate. And having eaten her seafood gumbo myself, I can honestly say she can burn. I wanted to know what was on those dinner plates. What were their favorites? But when I asked, well, she wanted me to be clear on one point. I'm not just a cook. I had a bachelor's degree in business and was teaching school. I'm not a home ec major. I learned to cook like every other woman by the cookbooks. So don't relegate me to to cooking. Mrs. Abernathy was by her husband's side on many a march, and she was a strategist in her own right. 
She helped publicize the mass meetings in Montgomery that led to the integration of the city's buses. And she has been a long-serving board member of Atlanta's mass transit system, MARTA. After some respectful prodding and a little flattery on my part, she gives me this. And um, I made excellent rolls, but could not make biscuits. I still can't make biscuits. Before the Albany movement was over, her husband and a few others would sketch their next assault on the system while sitting around Aunt Lucy's dining room table. After the break, who gathered around that table and what dishes did Lucy serve? Those questions and those good eats subvert some expectations of African-American food and African-American cooks. Simmons Catfish calls the Mississippi Delta home. I'm Harry Simmons, and I've been farming catfish since 1976. Get him talking catfish, and he'll speak of the quality of what his family raises and the loyalty of customers. But what he really gets excited about is the opportunity his company offers his community. Most of my management, upper management, and people working at this plant, I went to high school with. So we all like this community. We like Yazoo County and Humphreys County, Yazoo City and Belzone and Louise. We're the largest employer in Yazoo County. That's what I'm proud of, that people that wanted to stay in this community could, where a lot of the communities in the Delta are struggling to keep their population. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, Look for Simmons Farm-Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy. A list of vendors is online at SimmonsCatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in the Delta, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. Aunt Lucy entertained her family the same way she served her guests, in a manner most high. Another cousin of mine remembers going to her house once and being served a seven-course meal, seven, on china, with stemware, linen napkins across laps. Unlike Mrs. Abernathy, Aunt Lucy had become a home economics major in college. She believed in putting her degree to use. She also believed in progress, both in the law books and in the cookbooks. Although she'd grown up on the family farm eating off the land, as she got older and more citified, she embraced new kinds of recipes. Jim Crow couldn't keep her from making so-called modern dishes. All she had to do was buy a newspaper. The farm-to-table experience she'd grown up with was giving way among the middle class to use of more convenience foods. Concoctions like seafood au gratin casserole with noodles or shrimp salad and tomato aspic rings garnished with stuffed olives. And she would come up with, um, like, salads, string beans, turnip greens. Um, She would cook um, a carrot souffle. She never offered that to me, but it fits. It required skill to take a humble vegetable and transform it into a delicate orange cloud. It defied gravity. It was aspirational. And I have no doubt it rose in a ramekin with nary a chip nor hairline crack. The reality is is that Aunt Lucille came from the deep south. She came from Jackson County, Florida, where I'm expecting 
uh, fried chicken and all of that stuff. That's not what Aunt Lucille would cook. And it was always presented in such a way that was just, you know, you always had the, the glass, the stemware. And I mean, it was, it was amazing, the plates and, you know, all of that stuff. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance. Brenda claims Aunt Lucy did cook turnip greens from time to time. And when she got ready to make her special coconut pineapple Christmas cakes, she'd go back home to Jackson County to get fresh butter, eggs, and anything else she needed. But this notion of old-fashioned Southern hospitality, this assertion of dignity, and a pursuit of worldliness through new dishes, that's why C.B. chose her as a hostess. The way she entertained declared that she was a black woman worthy of respect because when she walked out her front door, indignities would be out there waiting for her. Reverend King, Reverend Abernathy, and hundreds of fellow protesters were arrested in Albany for leading a march without a permit in December 1961. Big lawyers from all over came to help. They mounted legal challenges to injunctions against marches. They helped protesters get out of jail. Attorneys Donald Hollowell, Constance Baker Motley, and Vernon Jordan had just won a major case. They made the University of Georgia integrate, admitting its first black students, Charlene Hunter-Galt and Hamilton Holmes. Fresh off that victory, Hollowell, Motley, and Jordan, who was an NAACP field secretary, enlisted in Albany. Sometimes Attorney Hollowell stayed with Aunt Lucy. This time, Attorney Jordan did. I stayed with Lucille. Stayed in that front room, and she took care of me, fed me, and uh, uh, was always very nice and uh, very warm and very welcoming. Aunt Lucy was always very measured in what she said at least around me and the other kids in the family. She was either asking us what college we wanted to go to or telling us to stand up straight. But Jordan, who went on to head the National Urban League and become a close advisor to President Bill Clinton, saw a different side of her. She would talk to us and share thoughts and ideas with us. I always felt like I was at home. (laughs) Aunt Lucy gave advice to lawyers? Well, I'm not sure that the conversations were uh, as much about advice as they were about information, sharing what was going on and what was being thought about, that there was going to be a march at at 8 o'clock, another march at 12 o'clock, and another march at 4 o'clock, what the police, police chief was likely to do to people being arrested. Aunt Lucy, Miss don't laugh so loud and cross your legs at your ankles, Aunt Lucy. Uh, by virtue of staying at Lucia's house, it made her a part of the movement because there was only one conversation. The conversation the summer of 1962 was whether King and Abernathy were going to ignore a local court order outlawing more mass marches. Police Chief Laurie Pritchett had read everything King had written about nonviolence to hobble the movement's progress he planned to mimic the approach. But there were exceptions. There's a famous picture that was all over the national press at the time of Cousin C.B. His head and white shirt are soaked with blood. He'd gone to see some clients in jail. They'd been demonstrating, and he'd wanted to talk to them. 
Instead of letting C.B. meet his clients, the local sheriff, D.C. Campbell, cracked a cane against his skull. Death threats against the movement leaders were common. That made little things like sharing a meal that much more important. I just remember my mother would either be on the phone calling his office to see whether he was in town or uh, if no one picked up, then it meant he may be on the road. That's Peggy King Yorta, Clinton's sister and CB's only daughter. And, of course, it was very real, even as a kid, you know, if you heard about assassinations, disappearances, things, bad things that happened to people, you were very afraid that that could happen to your dad because it's happened it happened to other people and so mealtime for me as a child when that door opened and dad came through the door and we all sat around the table it was just it was a moment of calm putting that period on at the end of the sentence I don't know if Aunt Lucy was ever afraid Cousin Brenda was away at college in Baltimore during the peak years of the movement. In the summer of 1962, she came back to Albany for a little while, more to hang out with her friends than in March. Coming home one afternoon, she walked across the porch, opened the front door, took a couple of steps, and froze. And sitting at the round dining room table was Martin Luther King. And I was shocked. Of course, I knew who he was, but to see him sitting at the dining room table was just shocking to me. There's a joke among people of my generation that everybody of Brenda's generation has a Dr. King story. You know, I marched with Dr. King. I did this with Dr. King. But given what I've learned about my own family, maybe I shouldn't be so flip. And he was talking when I came in. Martin Luther King was talking to them. And it was something, I had never been that close to him before. And it was his voice and his eyes when he was talking that just amazed me. And I said, oh, my goodness. If he'd tell me to go and march with him, I would. True to form, Aunt Lucy had food. Brenda thinks maybe pork chops and chicken may have been on the table. She's certain about the desserts. And, of course, for dessert, they had pound cake and icebox cookies. Mm. Mm. Those lemon icebox cookies. A little zest, some chopped Doherty County pecans, lots and lots of butter. Cousin Peggy remembers them well. And they would be rolled into these wonderful, long, almost square-shaped sort of tubes, not tubes, but logs in a way. And she would keep them in the freezer. And so she could pull them out. They were always petite, (laughs) always ladylike, okay? (laughs) 
Um, Mrs. Fields would be a little grotesque, okay, for her. (laughs) The restraining order against marches got thrown out by a federal district court judge in Atlanta in late July 1962. Attorney Motley argued the case. Four years later, she was named the first female African-American federal judge in the nation. But the Albany movement as a formal entity was flagging. By 1963, Dr. King had moved on. Albany was still segregated, but the fight here set the stage for Birmingham and Selma. It was a very important round in the fight for civil rights. We learned the the difference between saying we want it all right now and and taking two steps because you couldn't get it all. Uh, we learned that the civil rights movement had some competitive issues one with another and and some ego issues. Who was the leader and who was going to decide whether the injunction should be violated? And so there were a lot of lessons. Uh, Albany was instructive. CB kept on practicing law in Albany. He defended the America's Four, Freedom Riders, and so many others. And he kept the network of safe homes alive well past 1962. Before she was a representative in the U.S. House, Elizabeth Holtzman worked for CB in the summer of 1963. She was a Harvard Law student who'd found her way into the movement. Representative Holtzman didn't stay with Aunt Lucy, but she stayed with two other Albany families. To this day, she remembers how their warmth and their grace made her hard work easier. Every black family that took in civil rights workers took a risk. I mean, the house could have been shot into, set on fire, bombed. All of those things could have happened. Some people lost their jobs for putting up so-called outside agitators. Some gave up precious space in homes that were already too tight. But, you know, using their spare room for us, maybe they had other people who wanted to stay with them. So, of course, it was a, you know, a sacrifice that they made to have us stay with them. And, but the real sacrifice was the huge danger, the huge danger, the risk that, in, was in, that they undertook in putting us up. I guess it's an underground system, but it's how the system worked for civil rights, for the civil rights movement. These are all unsung heroes. To me, they're heroes, every one of them. More recently, Albany has recognized some of those heroes. Driving down West Broad Avenue in downtown Albany, you can't miss this one great big sand-colored building. It's stately, elegant, and it commands almost the entire block. Across the front cornice is engraved in huge letters, C.B. King, United States Courthouse. They dedicated the new building in his name in 2002. He didn't live to see it. He died in 1998. C.B.'s oldest son and his namesake has followed in his dad's footsteps as a civil rights attorney. There's another monument just a five-minute drive away. It's weathered, but still white. In another city, in another neighborhood, this house would have been fixed up by now. 
It might be on the National Register of Historic Places. Aunt Lucy's old neighborhood has fallen on hard times. Brenda sold the house a while ago. It was just too much to keep up. Alzheimer's is a nasty disease. It took Aunt Lucy away from us before she had to leave this house. She died in 2002. That's it. That's it. Miss Harris is with me as I park across the street from my aunt's house. I can't go in, but in my mind, I walk through each room. I'm just seeing the house now this way. It's a little, it's hard, but that's where I learned how to be a hostess, was through Aunt Lucy, and that things should be a certain way, because when you welcome people into your home, you want to give them your very best. My partner and I have a well-stocked bar back home in Atlanta. Our cocktail napkins are cloth. And I'll go ahead and say it, I'm a good cook. I can roast a chicken, Edna Lewis style, fry up and smother a pork chop, Jackson County, Florida style, and throw together a pasta for a weeknight dinner from what's in our backyard garden. That garden is scented with Thai basil and heavy with white eggplant, purple Cherokee tomatoes, and okra in late summer. But I don't bake. Looking at Aunt Lucy's place makes me think maybe it's time to change that. Maybe I'll start with her lemon icebox cookies. A couple of Christmases ago, we hosted a family brunch. I spent a week polishing silver. One of CB's grandsons and his great-granddaughter were there. White blossoms spilled from vases. I bought cathedral-height candles for the center of the table. When Cousin Brenda's husband walked in, He took one look and said, Lucille, Lucille, look at Lucille. I had arrived. And yet, to truly earn that praise, I must follow Aunt Lucy's example and let our table be a place where resistance is not only welcomed, but nourished. Rosalind Bentley, who brought this great story to Gravy, is a senior enterprise reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Read her companion piece on the hostesses on our website, that's southernfoodways.org. Rose Reed produced this episode, and James Biddle at the University of Georgia Grady School of Journalism and Mass Communication recorded it. That clarion singing voice you hear twice in this episode comes to us courtesy of Miss Rutha Mae Harris of Albany, Georgia. The description of contributions from Quantity of Farm came from the autobiographies of a black couple of the greatest generation by Dr. William G. Anderson, the first president of the Albany Movement. You may find photos from this episode, as well as more archival sources, at our website, southernfoodways.org. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milam, and our intern is Robin Miniter. One more thing to know before you go. As you go about your day, make cornbread, not war.